0: Chapter 23, verse 1. This section is dealing with people who are not born in Israel, but wish to worship in the sanctuary. So verse 1 says, A man with crushed or severed genitals may not enter the assembly of Yahweh. So you're like, okay, that's interesting. It was not uncommon for priests of other religions like Baal or Molech or other gods to actually castrate themselves and dedication to their gods. Now that's serious dedication to your religion. It's jacked up, but everything about paganism is jacked up once you study it. And so they would castrate themselves, and they would dedicate themselves as basically celibate priests in honor of serving faithfully and only to that god. So it's our modern-day version of uh, monks and nuns except they really made sure that they would never, ever go back on their vow. And so they're dedicating their souls. So basically what God is saying is, if you used to be a priest of Baal, you're not allowed in the tabernacle, ever. It must be made very clear that in all these cases, God is not forbidding the foreigner from worshiping Yahweh He's not forbidding the foreigner from becoming an Israelite. He's not forbidding the foreigner of joining the Abrahamic Covenant. Never, ever, ever does God forbid entrance into the covenant community, the covenant itself, and the blessings of the covenant. What he's forbidding is entrance into the tabernacle courtyard. Now remember, nobody other than the Levites are allowed into the tabernacle itself. But he's forbidding entrance into the tabernacle. And the reason is for that is because this guy used to be Baal worship. I know that seems a little unfair, but the reality is no one knows anybody's conversion is legit. Okay? There's no way that I can ever know for a fact that your conversion is completely 100% legit. We know people who lived it, acted for a long time, and deceived people, and then they won't go on back on it. We know marriages that were like that, where the person turned out to be deceiving, and that kind of stuff. We never know for a fact. And so the reality is, you can have this priest of Baal or some other religion who converts and comes in and then starts tainting the worship through his pagan practices. At the same time, if he's been in charge of pagan practices for a long time, it's going to take him a long time to learn. But the way that you worship Yahweh is completely different than Baal. And if he starts worshiping Yahweh like Baal, then and he's in the tabernacle, and this is happening in the holiness of the tabernacle in front of all these other people, that's defiling the tabernacle itself. And you have to realize it takes a long time to unlearn things that have been ingrained into you. And if you're a priest we're not talking about a little kid who's converting. We're talking about a grown adult who's been leading Baal worship for many years, and this is ingrained in his head. This is one of the biggest arguments of 1 Corinthians. First and 2 Corinthians is one of the major primary underlining themes throughout the entire book, is that you now have a new God, Jesus. And new God means new way of worshiping. And see, what a lot of the Corinthians is, the difference is today, you would think, yeah, duh, for a lot of these things that the Corinthians are doing. Like, we've been teaching our youth group people this for years. And when our youth people, when the kids in our youth group violate these things and do the things of the Corinthians, we're mad and we're angry because we've taught them and they know better. And we get mad at them and we punish them for every right. But the Corinthians all used to be pagans. And they just converted to Christianity like a couple months ago. They didn't grow up in the Jewish culture. They probably have never read the First Testament ever in their entire life. And everything that they were doing was absolutely normal and even called righteousness in Corinth. And so now they come into Christianity and they just give their devotion to Jesus in the same way that they gave it to their other gods. And the main premise of Corinthians is that Paul is saying, you don't worship Jesus this way. So, 1 Corinthians, he's very polite in a lot of ways. He's still kind of angry. By the time you get to 2 Corinthians, which is actually the fourth letter that he writes to them, that's when he's really angry. Because he's like, now after three letters, you know better. But in 2 Corinthians, that's the... The First Corinthians, that's the second letter that he wrote to them. We don't have letter one or three. And so he's a little bit more gentle. And so this is what God is basically dealing with, is this person is not allowed in the tabernacle because they have a completely different understanding of worship and who knows how long that will take. Or he could be deceiving people. He's going to creep these things in gradually over time. And to a certain extent, yes, there is forgiveness of God for your past life, but that doesn't mean that there's no consequences. Hey, look, I believe that somebody who has improper relationships with a young girl and molest her or something like that, as a teacher or something like that, I believe that that teacher can truly be forgiven, truly be restored, truly repent, truly change, and become an incredibly righteous person with many, many years of restoration, redemption, accountability, and counseling. But never should that person ever be allowed to be a teacher again. That's the consequences of the sin. The reality is they've shown that that's a weakness. And that weakness is going to be a temptation. And if you keep throwing them back into that thing, then you're playing with fire. They've shown themselves untrustworthy. And so the reality is, yes, they truly have repented. Yes, they've truly been redeemed. Yes, there's lots of people in the community can say, this person is a different person. And they can have a powerful, incredibly righteous ministry for God for the rest of their life. And it can become the distant past over time, almost as if they're a different person because it's the whole point of redemption but they should never, ever be allowed back with children because that's their past, and there's consequences. And they obviously have a weakness, and that could come back. Once again, you need to think of it that way. This isn't God forbidding them from salvation or the community or knowing God. This is just saying your past life disqualifies you from certain things. Same way, I'm married, which means I am not allowed to have A relationship with other women in the way that I did before I was married. When I was in college, I had lots of friends. I had friends that were males. I had friends that were females. And I hung out. We did things. The minute I say I do to my wife means that the way that I relate to women completely changes. It means that there's a lot of ministries that I'm disqualified from or positions. Not because I've sinned or done something wrong. It's just the nature of it. David was commanded by God to go out and kill all the Philistines. And when David says, I want to build a temple, God says, you can't build a temple. Your hands are bloody. Like, wait a minute, his hands are bloody because you told him to kill all the Philistines. Yeah, but at the same time, that disqualifies him from building something that is holy and pure. Not because he's a sinner, but because one ministry disqualifies you from another ministry. By being a male, I should not have a ministry in strip clubs. But some women might be able to have to. In fact, there's a ministry of women who go there. So you need to understand that this isn't Um, harsh. This isn't cruel. This is just certain things in your life, whether good or bad or neutral, whatever, just disqualify you from doing other things. And if you truly love God and you truly understand that the garden is vast, there's many other places for you than here. And so that's what God is basically speaking to. Your past does affect your future life, even with repentance, even with repentance verse 3 An Ammonite or a Moabite may not enter the assembly of Yahweh to the tenth generation none of descendants shall ever do so for they did not meet with food and water on the way that you came from Egypt and furthermore they hired Balaam Be- Be- son of Baorparath and an Aram not them to curse you but the Lord refused the Lord your God refused to listen to Balaam Be- and changed the curse to a blessing for Yahweh your God loves you, and you must not seek peace and prosperity forth for them through all the ages to come. You must not hate an Edomite, for he is your relative, and you must not hate an Egyptian, for he lived as a foreigner in the land. Children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of Yahweh. Now this one's very difficult. So he specifically singles out Ammonites and Moabites for the way that they treated them in the book of Numbers. And he says that if one of these people convert, then they're not allowed in the tabernacle for 10 generations. We have no idea what that means, what 10 generation means. In some places, 10 generations specifically means 10 generations. In fact, the fact that they later in verse 8 says three generations means that God is not hyper. He just doesn't seem to be using 10 as a symbol. symbol. Okay, ten can sometimes just mean, when God says for these amount of generations, a lot of times he doesn't mean that literally. He just means for an undetermined amount of time or for a long time. But in other cases, like the three generations, he's talking specifically about exact number. So the question is, which one is this? Is God saying they're not allowed in the tabernacle for an undetermined amount of time? Or is he saying literally for ten generations? If so, why is he so harsh? Does it take 10 generations to get that kind of behavior out of the line? I don't know. I mean, we know that sometimes it takes multiple generations to break cycles that are ingrained in our families. We don't really know what's going on here. So it's an undetermined time that the judge is allowed to look at the family and they see an incredible cycle being broken in these generations. And then the judge can say, after three or four generations we see that you've broken a lot of cycles of moabite traditions you're allowed to tabernacle or is he literally saying not till the 10th generation now here's what's interesting ruth in the book of ruth is a moabite and she ends up becoming the mother's great 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 mother of david this disqualifies her from entering the tabernacle Yet he does. And he's not punished by God. How do you work this? Now remember, murdering somebody brought the death penalty. But David murdered somebody and God forgave him. So remember, these are laws. The law always condemns. The law always brings punishment. But the character of God is not just a just God. He is also a merciful and forgiving God. And this is what you must understand is there's this difficult tension between, yes, this is the law, but there's also forgiveness and mercy. In the same way that that woman should have been executed in the book of John. Even Jesus himself, but at the same time, Jesus forgave her. Because he had every right to trump the law whenever he wanted to. And that's a difficult tension. Because absolute legalism is not healthy in your family. But license and never having any kind of standard of consequences or discipline is not healthy in your family either. And so even as parents, we are constantly stressing, worrying, fretting, making decisions, and praying over, is this case a case of absolute law crushing you? Or is this a case where I show mercy and forgiveness? Or do I marry the two somehow together and a creative kind of punishment? Because they don't go hand in hand. And so that's what you must understand is that even with these court cases, God is making it very clear that these things have to be punished and they cannot be tolerated. And if you tolerate them, then you're going to allow corruption in your community and you're going to go downhill. But at the same time, God is constantly forgiving and showing forgiveness because if you just have a God or authority figures just pounding you and pounding you and pounding you and there's no forgiveness or mercy, then you're going to have people rebel and people's hearts don't change. So how do you bring the mercy character of God and the law character of God together? That's the great question. And the good thing is that our God, our Father, is perfect. And He knows exactly when to punish Moses harshly for his sins. But He forgives David of an incredible crime because He knows exactly what that person needs at that moment. For us, we can get close to doing the same thing through prayer, through prayer, because here's the beauty. Not only is the Holy Spirit, the law written on our hearts, but the Holy Spirit is also the actual, relational, forgiving, loving, merciful God indwelling us too. And if we go to the Holy Spirit, he is both the mercy and forgiveness of God, as well as the law of God. And he can guide us in helping us determine what this particular court case needs, what this particular kid needs, or this particular friend needs. And so that's what you mentioned. saying. this is the law, and you're not allowed to go license on it, but at the same time, you're not allowed to be absolutely hardcore legalistic and never show a relationship, love, or forgiveness, or mercy. Without the Holy Spirit, this is completely impossible. And that's what you must understand. That yes, God's law is good and perfect. And God's mercy is good and perfect. But living this stuff out is absolutely impossible without the Holy Spirit. If it was possible, we would have pulled it off before Jesus came along. I am convinced that one of the reasons why Jesus waits so long in Israel's history before he shows up and redeems them just so that they have many, many, many years to show they couldn't do it. Because you could easily say, you just didn't give me enough time. Like if you're like, hey kid, lift this up. And the kid like spends like two seconds lifting and then you go, oh yeah, I'll do it. And they are like, you didn't give me a chance. But if God allows you to beat yourself into ground for like several thousand years, you can't use an excuse. And remember by the time Jesus comes along, Israel's had every form of government that you could possibly, republic, democracy, kingship, dictatorship, oligarchy. They've had every form of government. They've had every form of kind of belief that you could ever imagine. They've incorporated every kind of religion with their religion. And they've gone through every kind of phase of prophet, priest, and stuff. And they've still just pounded themselves into the sin ground. And by the time Jesus comes up, there is no, but if we just had one more year, we would have had utopia. We were right there. No, you aren't. And that's one of the reasons that God waited so long. Because he wanted you to understand that without the Holy Spirit, this is impossible. This is impossible. 23, verse 9. Purity and personal hygiene. When you go out as an army against your enemies, guard yourselves against anything impure. If there is someone among you who is impure because of some nocturnal emissions... He must leave the camp, and he may not re-enter immediately. And when evening arrives, arrives he must wash himself with water, and then sunset he may enter the camp. Now, we already talked about this in Leviticus with bodily discharges. It's always everybody's favorite topic. The reality is what he's saying is that this applies in the army too. Now, remember, this is all not allowing things that are, shouldn't be mixed. Yes, these people have converted, and they're now coming in, but you're not allowed to mix them with the tabernacle because the tabernacle is holy. That's adultery in a different kind of form. Now you've got soldiers going out to battle. And he's made it very clear that if you're unclean, you're not allowed to mix with the clean. Now, a bodily discharge of this kind of sense only makes you unclean till evening or the next day. Now, that's clearly been laid out in Leviticus. The modification here is, well, not modification, but the additional note here is that You may think that now that you've gone off to war, you're no longer in the community. And so, therefore, if you're outside the community, that's where the unclean go. Therefore, I'm already outside the community. And if I'm considered unclean, then I'm already outside the community because all the other soldiers are too. So, therefore, it's okay for me to be part of this. And what God is now saying is the community is the people, the camp. Because God kept saying, outside the camp, outside the camp, outside the camp. If you're unclean, outside the camp. Now they're outside the camp because they're fighting a war. And God says, technically the camp is not just the borders of your tents. Technically the camp is you. You, the people, are the camp. And so even though you're outside the camp geographically, you're still with the Israelite people in a community of soldiers. And you're still unclean. And therefore, you must be outside that camp. And that's what God is making clear, that this applies even when the camp separates from the main camp and travels. Verse 12, you are to have a place outside the camp to serve as a latrine. You must have a pl- spade among your other equipment. And when you relieve yourself outside, you must dig a hole with the spade and then turn and cover your excrement. For Yahweh your God walks about in the middle of your camp to deliver you and defeat your enemies for you. Therefore, your camp should be holy so that he does not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Now, basically, God is saying is, I don't want to walk through your camp and see your crap. Okay, because that's unclean. He's not just saying that, although that's still kind of disgusting. Um, But what he's saying is this, what we know. You don't put your feces and your urine and your waste inside your camp. You flush it down the drain and outside the house. And you put your latrine out. But you, you have to understand, this isn't factual knowledge yet. Because many of you are aware, and I've talked about this back in Leviticus, but you're aware, like, even up in the medieval period, in the 16s and 17s and 1800s, People, like, in the, especially the crowded cities in England and stuff, they would just go in a bucket and just dump it out their window into the streets where everybody's walking. And it just flowed. That's nasty and disgusting. If only they knew about bacteria and all that kind of stuff back then. And I, I mentioned this back in Leviticus. That was one of the major causes of the bubonic plague that killed one third of Europe's population. That's a lot of people because they're dumping crap out their window. But who never got touched by the bubonic plague? The Jewish communities. The Jewish communities never, ever, ever got the bubonic plague because they were dumping all this stuff outside their communities. (laughs) Maybe they're going into the European (laughs) communities dumping it there. (laughs) If you're doing it, we might as well just add to it. It's like hard not to litter when you're already in a place that's filled with litter. They, so they're, they do this. Ironically, though, the Christians, the European well, the Christians, the Europeans believe that this was an attack of the devil on them, and that's why they're getting the bubonic plague, and the Jews weren't getting attacked, so therefore they were in league with the devil, so they killed the Jews. But what saved them was the to law. The Jews didn't know anything more about science that the Europeans didn't know. They just obey God, and when they did it, they lived, and that's what God is saying: You must not mix these things; these things don't go together. The waste that you excrete does not mix with the hygiene and the life of your life. Do not mix these things. This is about pu- purity. Verse fifteen: You must not return an escaped slave to his master when he has run away to you. Indeed. He may live among you in any place he chooses, in whichever the villages he prefers, you must not oppress him. Now the implication here is that the slave is escaping because he's been mistreated and abused in some kind of a way. And the idea is that the slave is coming from another country. It's, you don't know where the slave is. He's escaped. He's escaped from his country of oppression. He's been oppressed there. He doesn't belong there. He's an escaped, and now he's come to your country for freedom and for refuge. And basically, what he's saying is, you're not allowed to return. If he's come here for safety, if he's come here to be part of the people. You're not allowed to send the foreigner back to another nation. You're not allowed to send the foreigner back to another nation, and you mal- must allow him to live where he wants to live. He is free, and that's the implication. That this person has shown their desire to be a part of the covenant community. Because listen, the slave could have escaped anywhere. So you got all these nations in the world, and he's escaping, and he chooses to go to this dinky little pathetic city state of Israel. If he chose to escape there, there's a reason. Because he's probably most likely attracted to the covenant of that people. And so what God is saying is the slave wants to be a part of the covenant if he wants to be a part of the covenant, you're not allowed to send him back to non-covenant people. That's adultery. That's mixing two things that don't belong. And so you're to give him his freedom and you're allowed him to live where he wants to live because he's shown his desire to be there. Verse 17. There must never be a sacred prostitute among the young women of Israel nor a sacred male prostitute among the young men of Israel. You must never bring the pay of a female prostitute or wages of a male prostitute into the temple of Yahweh your God in fulfillment of any vow, for both of these are abhorrent to Yahweh your God. So you're not allowed to tolerate the male or female prostitute. Now remember, this is a temple prostitute. And in other cultures, you slept with them to worship the gods. So you're not allowed to bring them in. This takes us right back to Numbers and the Moabites. So you're not allowed to bring them in because you're not allowed to mix two things that don't go together. And not only that, you're not allowed to tithe the money that you made in being a temple prostitute to the temple. You're not allowed to mix the unholy. So in God's eyes, is there such thing as dirty money? Yes. Now, I don't know how that applies to drug money and that kind of stuff. I mean, it does seem a shame that you just got all that there. But the idea is that I don't really think that God is literally saying that there's such thing as dirty money. The idea is that your tithe is you're taking your work and you're giving, you worked hard for this money and you're taking this money and now offering it to God as a form of trust and saying, I'm taking my expansion of the garden... I'm taking my work and my gifts that I got paid for and I'm offering them back to God as a thank you offering to you and I'm showing that I trust you. Well, if you're making your money in temple prostitution, then you can't say that's the expansion of the garden. You can't say that I'm offering my temple prostitution to God as a thank. Thank you, God, for allowing me to have temple prostitution. And you can't say I'm trusting in God when you're off in temple prostitution. And so, I don't think it's necessarily a fact that you can't have money that's been, because remember, technically, somewhere every cent that you've had has been used in some kind of bad way. The reality is, you're not allowed to take what you made and say, This is an offering to God. Because I dedicate my life and my work to God. You can't dedicate that to God. That's the point. So, if we apply this further. If you are doing dishonest things at your company and your work, and you're making money off of dishonest gain, should you really tie that to God? If your job profession, at the direct result of who you are and what you do, is hurting people, violating the law, or immoral, or illegal in any kind of a way, you basically gain money by violating the law and violating who God is. And then you turn around and say, I'm going to offer to the God as a tithe. Now, I'm not saying if your company is corrupt and doing bad things, because there is no perfect company. But if you're watching it happen and you're not doing anything about it, or you're the cause of it, that kind of stuff, then your money is dirty, so to speak. And you've become wealthy, and wealthy as in gaining wealth, <laughs> because of your dishonesty, because of your immorality. You shouldn't be tithing them. You shouldn't be tithing that. Because you gained it in an in biblical way, and now you're saying, I love you, God. I'm offering this back to you.